Welcome back, everybody. This was one of my favorite podcasts of the year. Long time coming. Stefano Sifandos. I think I got that right. Uh, I call him Steph or Stefanos, but he is um, somebody I've been tracking for a while. We get into our history a little bit more on the podcast, so I'm not going to just jibber jabber away talking about all that. But every now and then, and I'm sure it happens more or less for, for all of us, but there's a moment where you meet somebody and you just know, like, okay, there's something here and there's something I want to know more. I want to know more. Or I really like this guy. What's, what's the deal with this guy? And I've always felt that way with Stephanos. And it's been awesome because, you know, he, to me, was like Christine Hassler's partner. You know, like that's how I knew him and because I knew Christine. And so it was like, oh, who did Christine Hassler allow into her life? Kind of, kind of a feel and vibe. And um, he's this guy's got so much medicine. You know, just a, just a fantastic human being who has been through a lot and done a lot of work and has one of the most beautiful stories that I've ever heard. And I really just enjoyed every second of this. I know you guys are going to dig this one. Support the show by buying some wonderful items from our sponsors because. These guys make the show possible. We are brought to you by Sovereignty. Sovereignty is a company that has reformulated their old supplement purpose to what's now called Purpose Plus. Purpose Plus is an Ayurvedic-inspired super formula that tackles daily energy and peak performance that will empower and support your mind and body to achieve new levels of productivity. Purpose Plus is a powerful blend of herbs and supporting constituents that energize and deliver what customers have described as Zen Focus. Many of you have heard me talk about, I mean, obviously I've been doing uh, ads for Sovereignty for a while now, but the time that Jason Crawford brought over the machine to my house that, that should not only check my pulse, but my HRV, it checked metabolic rate. And uh, one of the curious things is that it increased my metabolic rate, meaning I was burning more fat for fuel. I had increased energy. It certainly helps me in the gym as a pre-workout, but at the same time, I increased my HRV, which means I had Zen-like focus. I actually have what they're describing here, verified through science and verified through self. Most importantly, the N equals one uh, trumps all the other studies or anything else. But it was really cool to see that mirrored on the back end and to be able to look internally into the, the systems of Kyle Kingsbury as a specific unit and see how that affected me. But there really is nothing like this on the planet. It mixes super easy. They come in little little single packets. It tastes fantastic. I just throw it in a shaker, mix it in with some cold water, shake it up and pound it. I take it. They're great on the road. They're great pre-workout. They're great everywhere. You don't feel overstimulated. It's just right. 75 migs of organic caffeine to hit you right from the get-go, and then another 75 of time-released with a whole host of Ayurvedic herbs and CBD as well as CBG. Seven clinically studied ingredients with scientifically supported synergistic supplements chosen for their support of cognition, energy, and mood. I love saying that quickly. Uh, bottom line is these guys are one of the best nootropics, best energy drinks, best combination of the two ever formulated on the planet. And I worked for a company that designed supplements for a living. These guys are fantastic. Check them out over at HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash sovereignty.co. That's S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O slash Kyle to grab my favorite CBG supplements, sovereignty.co slash Kyle. And don't forget to use the code KKP for 20% off your purchase. We're also brought to you by Organifi. Organifi makes a whole host of amazing things. We've had the Organifi founder, Drew Canoli, on the podcast. He has an incredible story. Definitely check that one out if you've missed it. 
Um, you know, I've been asked to talk about the greens and I think I've talked about the greens enough. I absolutely love the greens. My son loves the greens and you can't fool a six-year-old. They taste incredible. There's ashwagandha and a ton of other things, spirulina, chlorella, things that I'm not going to normally add to my diet. I don't have... Um, ashwagandha shavings in my soup. I don't go and get uh, all of these different green things and add them to my salads. I have basic ass salads if I have it with a whole heap of meat and some primal kitchen salad dressing like any good man does. But the bottom line is I want to make sure that I'm rounding out my diet and the Organifi green juice is one of the ways that I do that. Organifi red, really good as well. I've also used that intra-workout. And what's cool about that is that Typically, what's been found through Native American uh, traditions and things like that is like attracts like. So if I have a liver issue, I'm going to eat liver. If I have a blood issue, I'm going to eat red things like beets and things like that. In the Organifi Red Juice, anytime I'm pumping blood through my body, it has a huge benefit. So I love Organifi Red while I'm working out, and I love the gold at nighttime. It has the ability to relax me. I like heating up some straight coconut cream because I like the high fat, and I mix in a scoop or a scoop and a half of the Organifi Gold and with lemon balm and turmeric and all the things that are anti-inflammatory. It helps me slow down, wind down. It's like a, I don't know, it's it's like a dad's or parent's nightcap. You know, if you don't want to have a a hot toddy or something like that before bed because you're focused on the gains, the Organifi Gold is one of my absolute favorite things to have at night. Check all that out at Organifi.com slash KKP. That is www.O-R-G-A-N-I fi.com slash KKP and use code KKP for 20% off a big old whopper, Organifi.com, KKP at checkout, Organifi.com slash KKP, KKP at checkout. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Biome Health, the company co-founded by the renowned scientists who named the mycobiome Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum. And uh, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum and his son Afif have been on the podcast before. I know I've been hyping the grand return of these two on the podcast for this month, uh, June. And unfortunately, that has been rescheduled a second time. But fear not, uh, this is going down at some point this summer. Um, these guys are flying in, and I'm just going to put that out there uh, into, the, into, the, into the 3D realm from the astral as a prayer and an intention. Uh, they're coming. We're going to make podcast gold another time. But you can check out uh, the first podcast we did with the two of these guys. Nobody's studied the microbiome or the mycobiome, which is your fungal network, as much as these two guys. Uh, Truly, truly, these are ahead of their time. These guys are ahead of their time. They have created an online interactive gut assessment tool based on nearly five years of collected microbiome data, one of the largest comprehensive microbiome data sets in the world. Consumers can log into guttesting.com to answer a short series of demographic, health, lifestyle, and diet questions. Once they've completed the questions, which takes about two minutes, They'll be given insights regarding the likelihood of their gut being imbalanced, their associated gut score, and whether they are more likely or not to have higher levels of candida compared to levels normally found in the gut. And as I mentioned the last time I ran this this ad, my wife and I dealt with candida for over a year. It's a big deal. And it's something you want to get ahead of the curve on prior. A lot of people who have skin issues or dandruff or all these other things, there's a fungal imbalance. And you really want to know ahead of time. So get your gut score. Check it out at gutstesting.com. And if you feel so inclined based on your results or how you feel, you can do a little deeper dive. And this is where they offer their uh, biome health gut assessment and other tools. And this is where you can really take it upon yourself to learn more about what's going on inside your body so you can find balance through the foods that you eat, the probiotics that you take, and really 
how all the things in the environment are affecting you from your sleep to your stress, to relationships, you name it, all of that factors in. These guys understand that better than anybody. And you can learn all of this over at their website, how it affects DNA and all sorts of other really cool things. Guttesting.com is the natural evolution of biome health by turning big microbiome data and metadata into actionable insights that the everyday consumer can utilize for free to better understand their gut health. That's from my dude, the CEO, Afif Ganoum. They've incorporated vast amounts of data that really started illuminating key factors that point directly to specific gut health challenges. For example, we found that people who follow a vegetarian diet were significantly more likely to have candida. I'm going to repeat that. This is from their data. For example, we found that people who follow a vegetarian diet were significantly more likely to have candida overrepresented in their gut compared to non-vegetarians. We knew we had to democratize this information and empower consumers with a better guide to understanding their microbiome. Now, they're not going to change you. They're not going to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. They're going to help you optimize the diet that's right for you. These guys are non-dogmatic. They understand they're going to work within the parameters of whatever you have uh, created for yourself. If you only eat plants, if you only eat meat, anything in between, they're going to optimize that. Obviously, I think the only one they would really try to work with is if you only ate meat. But regardless, uh, you take this test, it's free. And um, it, the results are super quick. It's very easy to use. And then you can fool around and find other amazing things on their website, such as their probiotics, biome, as well as some of the stool analysis. If you want to really get in there and check it out, just go to guttesting.com. Use code KKP for 20% off for all listeners. That is guttesting.com, code KKP. And without further ado, my buddy, Stephanos. Oh, we're in. We're in right up, right from the jump, brother. <laughs> yeah, I like to fuck around. <laughs> you know, I, I do. Uh, I'm not pressed for time, but I want to get all the time that I can with you, brother. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's absolutely. Been a minute. Yeah. Um, let's just take it back to the beginning. Tell me about your life growing up. You're not from the states. No, no, clearly not. I'm definitely not from Arkansas. The accent's not from <laughs> the south. Uh, I grew up in Australia and hence the accent, and Greece. So the first few years of my life, I was in, in Greece. So what happened was I was born in Australia. My dad's Greek, mum's Italian. Dad wanted to go back to Greece, miss his family. He'd left when he was like, I think 2021. 20, after the, 22 maybe actually, after the, the military, he went, got a boat to Australia many years ago. He's, in, he's nearly 80 now. Um, and went to Sydney and he, he had a cousin there and just made his way to Western Australia. And then many years later, obviously met my mum and he just wanted to go back to miss his family. So we went back to Greece. I was a little baby and um, he tried to make it work. It was very hard in Greece. Is, I mean, it's super hard now and it was super hard back then economically. It's just difficult. And so we stayed there for a few years. My first language was Greek and speak English until like I was I had to go to pre-language when we came back to Australia when I was like five or six. And um, that, was, that was interesting for me because I love my cousins. I love my family in Greece and I really miss them. And then we came back to Australia, I had my mum's parents, my, mother, my grandparents. I loved them. I felt very displaced. You know, it was very difficult. And then coming back into Australian culture, I couldn't speak the language. I couldn't speak English very well. So that was tough as well. For how, very, how old were you then? About five or six coming yeah. back. Yeah. That's a hard age too. I felt very, I remember being, you know, not, not to talk about, there were good times as well. Like I had great times too. A lot of painful times, but a lot of great times. But I remember a lot being in the corner a lot by myself, like as a kid in the, in school, in preschool, in pre-language, uh, just playing by myself, eating food by myself. I could, it was really difficult to 
connect with people. Now it's not an issue. It's interesting, you know, like <laughs> our voids become our values, right? Like I, I, I struggled to make connection with people and now it's really not a struggle and it's something that I thrive in and I, and I love it uh, and I sort of need it in my life, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all need it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, it's something Anahata talks about, like the, the who was your greatest teacher, you know, and it's not the person that you always think of or what was your greatest teaching even, you know, as a as a thing rather than, you know, uh, a, a specific event or a person, you know, it could be anything, but yeah. it's to look at that fully and see like, so, sometimes it's the person who taught you the most about what not to do in life. Oh yeah. It's not just who taught you the most good stuff. Right. Oh yeah. And then when we, we see it like that, we can begin to think that, oh, okay, like this, this thing that was really hard on me ended up giving me some sort of superpower. Right. And like, clearly you have no trouble, <laughs> no trouble speaking to people. And, and, and I don't mean just speaking to people, but communicating deeply to someone, yeah. you know, and I had firsthand experience with that with you at fit for service last year. And I definitely want to, I want to get there, but I want to, I want to bridge this gap. Tell me about the trajectory of your life. You know, you moved back to Australia. What was life like as you started to integrate there and, and where did that lead you education wise? Because you, you, you wear many hats, you know, I feel like yeah. I'm looking in a mirror right now, you know, with, yeah. with the, 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 the broad spectrum of knowledge that and wisdom that you carry is going to be hard to cover in an hour and a half. So <laughs> but start to piece some of that together. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, going off that alone piece and isolation piece, I really ostracized myself and what happened, what, what coupled that was the family life. My mum my and dad were very unhappy. They were fighting all the time. I grew up in a very violent, very volatile, just intense environment. Right? And so I hit a lot. And so that, that, that kid in the corner eating by himself at school was really a reflection of me hiding under my bed or being in the corner at home as well and not really feeling like I fit in anywhere. And so, and I'm painting that picture for you because it will help you understand how I then progressed and the fascinations that I had as a kid. As a kid growing up, I would sit and watch TV with my grandparents. We lived with my grandparents for a few years, my mum's parents, right? Because we, my, my dad was building a house and my mum and dad were building a house and we just stayed there. It made sense. And, you know, Italian Greeks, sort of families always together, right? And I would spend time watching TV with my grandparents and it felt pretty safe. It was like a refuge for me. That and eating. Food, food's a, it's, it's been a crux for me and it's, uh, I'm a foodie <laughs> and it's been a, it, oh fuck man, it's been, it's been a crux in my life, let me tell you. Um, but also that, like my grandmother would make awesome food and I would just, and it just felt safe, you know, it was those moments of reprieve that I would have. And I remember as a kid, I would then bring food to my school to give food to the kids to try and make friends, you know, like it was that level of, I felt so alone, but I needed the connection. I miss what I had with my cousins and my family because my dad uh, had seven uh, brothers and sisters. So a lot of, a lot of kids, you know, yeah. the, but I had no one. In it's probably easier to communicate with and all that just because of the blood relationship. And that too. Yeah. That closeness, right. And family was a really, really big thing. Um, and, and it still is. But being more isolated in Australia, that's, that's the feeling that I had, right? And so when I was a little kid, we'd watch TV and I'd watch um, National Geographic and I'd watch, uh, my grandparents would just watch whatever, right? Documentaries. But I remember seeing the United Nations and I remember piecing things together and asking questions. I was a very curious kid, right? Super curious kid. And I remember saying, like, who's that? And, and I can't remember if it was Kofi Annan back then. I'm pretty sure it was, or maybe person before him, but he was a United Nations Secretary General. And I would say to my mum, I want to be like him. 
because I want to help all the kids that don't have food and all the kids that are hurting and are troubled. Right? Like that was the vision that I had as a kid. As I grew up, I figured geopolitically, United Nations isn't the, maybe the best organization to be part of. <laughs> but you know, whatever, that was the intention that I had. And so that drove a lot, that coupled with, you know, the pain and the violence that I was experiencing as a kid, you know, it produced a lot of codependence in me. It produced a lot of insecurity in me, produced enmeshment in me. It produced me wanting to, you know, and I, and I say this when I look back now with a little bit of shame, trying to manipulate people to be my friend because I didn't have that, right, at primary school. So primary school, what's that here? Like um, up to age 12, right? Like elementary school. Elementary right? school, yeah. And I was super detached. I mean, kids were having sex, man, in, in, in age 10, 11, 12 in my primary school. And I was blown away. I mean, I didn't have sex. We can get there, but I didn't have sex until I was 17. Same. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't, I masturbated after I had sex. Oh, I was beaten off around the clock <laughs> six times a day. I'd, when I'd walk, I lived close to, to school. I'd walk home during high school and jerk off twice before, just in the lunch hour, <laughs> twice in an hour and get back. That's how fucking rocket ship I was. I couldn't hold it together. I, I started late. <laughs> I started late. But once I started, fuck, did I go for it? Like I went for every, all of it. I mean, my first sexual experience was with a prostitute. My friend took me. I mean, it was... There's, he was like, you're late to the party. You I'm very get, late. You gotta have skin in the game. Yeah, I was very late to the party, you know, based on what I was experiencing. So then sort of hit high school and things started to change. I was overweight as well as a kid. And I just, again, just very embarrassed, very shy, very shameful. These old patterns I was, cre- I was creating and also developed to protect myself as a kid started changing in high school, you know, hormones, puberty. And I was very angry. I was a very angry kid, but all that anger was like down here, right? And again, that curiosity still permeated my existence. It's still, I was still curious about things, how people functioned, what, why people did what they did, why do people hurt people, why can't people like me, why can't I just fit in, like all these big questions, existential, I didn't know what they were existential back then, but these big questions, right? And I was just stuck there, but hit high school, I did something, I started playing a little soccer and started losing a little weight, but did something called the milk run. And so I'd be on the back of a truck delivering orange juice and eggs and milk to people in the neighborhood, right? I didn't do that anymore so much, but we used to do that back then. And um, I lost weight because I was jumping on and off a truck, running. I started, losing, I started feeling a little more confident. I started hitting the gym, started really getting into fitness more. So I started getting more confidence. And as I became more confident, I also started to let that anger out but I didn't let it out in healthy ways. So I'd be drinking, I'd be fighting. I started- You became a real Aussie. Very much so. Very, I was actually talking to, <laughs> talking to someone yesterday, a client of mine yesterday, and he was talking to a friend of his who's actually Australian and left Australia because of the fight culture and drink culture. Then he just said, it's too much for him. And, and I was like, yeah, shit, that's what it was like. That's what it is like. You just go out, you sink piss, which is alcohol, and you just fucking fight. You fight or you fuck, that's it. Or, or, or you're too paralytic to do either. But that's what you were doing in Australia. It was crazy, man. I just, I don't know, I, that culture just, it's so detached. So I was doing a lot of that. Yeah, I haven't had, I've, I haven't been to Australia yet. I want to go. And I've had a lot of buddies. One of my longtime friends uh, was a training partner of mine at American Kickboxing Academy mm-hmm. and uh, from Australia. Great, great guy, uh, Dennis. And, uh, but I did spend some time in Thailand and that's just a hop, skip it and jump away from yeah. Australia. So there was a ton of Aussies there. And it was funny. I think George W. Bush, and I don't want to derail you. I want to circle back. Yeah, that's okay. But uh, W was in presidency in the U.S., and so I'd, I'd meet girls and, and, you know, there's, and I'm out there with my dad, you know, and he's all about it. He's super cool. And he's, he brought me out there to train, you know, when I first got in the UFC 
And the second they, I'd, I'd see smiles and eyes, and the second I'd open my mouth, they'd be like, oh, American. You know, and I'd be like, fuck, dude. What? But then I'd hear the Aussies, and they'd just be shit-faced on Bangla Road, you know, way more obnoxious than me. Oh, and so I'm like, God, if Americans get a bad rap, and I was like, oh, it's our president. Okay. Like, yeah. Aussies aren't fucking up the world right now. We are. No. And so, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was funny. And then I'd see, like, all these fights in the streets, and I'm like, guys, you just got a, you got a fucking five-minute taxi ride, and you can actually learn how to fight with some of the best guys on the planet right here. It's embedded in their culture. Yeah. But they would rather get drunk and do it in the streets. Yeah. And, you know? and, that, and, and Aussie culture, Aussie drinking culture is very disrespectful as well. Super disrespectful. And it's all clicky too. Like you'd, hey, It's not different to here, man. It's not different to the Indian caste system. It's not different to the world that we live in. It, it's cliques and, and, and castes and groups. And you know, you'd have the Australians and you'd have the Italians and you'd have the Portuguese and you, you, you'd have the, the, the Spanish. And everyone's just everyone against each other. And everyone just wants to fight and prove how good they are. And not only because everyone's wounded, everyone has daddy issues or everyone has a broken, not everyone, but so many of us have come from broken families or repressed pain that hasn't been healthily transmuted into something different, which was me, right? Just so abrasive, so aggressive, so fresh. I always wanted to fight, whether it was verbally, prove my point, because I'd been disempowered for so long. I'd been suppressed for so long, largely by my father and my mother and that dynamic, right? That I just wanted to make sure everyone knew what I had to say mattered. I think I'll do it in, I hope I'll do it in a different way now you know, <laughs> as a 39 year old man. But um, back then it was just, I didn't give a fuck what anyone thought and my way was the only way and, and, and that's all that mattered. And you can imagine the, the, the tension that I had in my life that I was living with constant, constant impatience and frustration and abrasiveness and just not happy, not happy in my skin. Even though I was doing the things I was training, I was building up my body, I was, you know, I stayed away from drugs. Uh, I drink a lot, but I stayed away from drugs. And well, I, I stayed away from taking drugs. I didn't stay from away from being in certain groups of people that would do other things with drugs and and being part of that culture as well, and and gangs and just stupid things because I was insecure and I just wanted to wear the mask to make sure that everyone knew that I was tougher than what I was. But inside, I was scared, man, super scared. Yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of a lot of mirroring here listening to you right now. I had a football coach that so used to tell me, uh, or he'd, he'd yell it across the field to me anytime I'd I'd be uh, you know chatting to the team, you know, loud mouth, getting my fucking point across, my way or the highway, that kind of shit. He'd say, "Kingsbury, get off your fucking soapbox." I'm like, "What is that?" I finally asked him, "Like, what does that mean?" And he's like. It's like people used to jump on a soapbox back in the town square and yell at everybody, get your paper or whatever they had to get across, you know, but it was, it was, it was it's funny because I have a podcast now, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like. But the intention's different. Yeah. yeah Come from's different. Yeah, exactly. So you continue on. When do you start to get a sense of self-reflection? Like who, who, who was your first mentor? Who was your first guidepost into some of the work that you're into now? I think my first, my first real mentor was, so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time escaping in my teens as well, whether it was through fighting or whether it was through alcohol or whether it was through um, just ignoring what my needs were, you know, and not, not actually paying attention to my fear. Um, but I did a lot of ignoring. And so I think I missed a lot growing up. You know, I missed a lot as a teenager that I didn't address and I also escaped a lot. And so when I was 19, I thought to myself, I'm either going to go to the military 
because again, like, I got to prove myself. I got, and I'm not going to just go to the military. I'm going to try and be a, an SAS special operative, or I'm going to be, you know, in, in the commando unit or something, some spec ops thing, right? I looked at that, and I looked at: Do I go to the military now, or do I go try and work on a cruise ship and travel the world? But well, traveling the world, having sex doing all those things was probably a little more appealing. And again, I didn't exactly have a growth mindset back then. And so it was the, oh, the quick fix, the, let's go to a deeper distraction. It's going to also give me a lot of pleasure. So it was still tough because I, you know, one way ticket, I had to work it all out myself. And I did. And within a few weeks, I got a job on a cruise, on a cruise boat. Now, why am I telling you that? A um, couple of reasons. It definitely helped me mature a lot more. Um, but I met, I really met my mentor then. And my first mentor, and his name was um, James Medithil Cherian, and he was an Ayurvedic master. He was a Vedian, right? And he'd been studying for at least 30 years. So I was working on the cruise ship. I was managing the gym because I love training. And I thought, well, I don't want to do things I don't like. So I may as well, you know, get my qualifications in gym instruction and fitness and all that stuff. So that, that would get me on the, on the boats as well. And massage too. So I was a massage therapist. So I worked in the spa. And he came in and he would work six months of the year on the boat and six months he would plough his rice fields, basically like a half an acre to an acre of, of just rice fields. Or normally if he's not on the cruise ships, he'd be travelling around India, going to these, these exclusive resorts and then giving his medicine and it's, it's medicine. And so I was fascinated by him and I was always fascinated by ancient culture, whether it be Greek, Mesopotamian culture, Indian culture specifically. Like, I mean, this is my first tattoo, the Sanskrit here, right? So meeting him, I was blown away. And he was, I was, I mean, 19, 20, he was maybe 55 or something then. So he wasn't super old or anything, but he was, he was mature. And he just taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about life. He taught me a lot about ancient medicine and culture and, and the, the, the Hindu culture and his life back in India and his family. And just, I really looked up to him and he was a father figure that I never had. I could relate to him in a different way. And the, the bonus thing was like, I mean, I don't even know how big, maybe four of these tables was the size of our room. We bunked together as well. And so we'd, we'd you know, be massaging for 12 hours a day and then we'd come back to the room and he'd teach me more things. I was very fascinating, very fascinating. And I was very, I felt very blessed. And, and, and that's where I started moving more into humility because he, he showed me that. He showed me that way that it doesn't have to be so fucking aggressive and so out there. I can be more inward. You know, he taught me more how to meditate. He, he taught me, um, you know, I'd started yoga before then. I played with it. But he, he, he taught me the, the intellectual and the spiritual principles of yoga as well. It was just, it was just a, an amazing couple of years of my life and I never, I ne- I'll never forget him and I'll always remember. And I, we've spoken since, by the way. It was a few years ago we, we jumped on a Zoom call with um, – because his nephew got him the job on the cruise ship, so his nephew's a little more savvy. And we, we jumped on a Zoom call. Man, I just cried the whole time. I feel like crying now. I could just – yeah, he's just he's – just, um, I haven't thought about him for a long time. Yeah. He, 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 I don't want to say he saved me, but he, he helped restore a part of my soul that had been missing for a very long time. And um, he brought a calmness into my life that I didn't experience. I think I'd never experienced because I was always alert. I was always very hypervigilant. And I think that's some of the tears. It's not just missing him and thinking about him. It's the gifts that he gave me that if I wasn't here right now talking about this, I don't think I'd actually acknowledge it because the first time I'm hearing, I'm hearing myself say it and think it is that peace that he helped it's like a soul retrieval in, shaman, in, in shamanistic practices, right? It's, it's that. He helped me retrieve a part of my soul that I had really, 
I'd given away because I was just in so much fear and so much repression. And I think that's the biggest gift that he gave me. So when you asked me who my first mentor was, I mean, yeah, him. Yeah, brother. That's big. Yeah. So you were on this cruise for a couple of years. A couple of years, yeah. I had to, I had to come back. Um, I didn't have to come back, but it's interesting how life works out. You know, the, um, I was doing really well in the cruise ship and, you know, being, being Greek and being a Greek national as well, it was a Greek cruise ship and there's a lot of politics in Greece. There's a lot of hierarchy and ego in, in, in Greek culture, particularly in Greek men. They have a lot of arrogance around, you know, what they've contributed or what the culture has contributed to Western civilization and so forth. And with that, and back then I was just a young kid and, you know, I got a lot of attention and I was just very lively. And, and James, he helped bring that liveliness even more out of me as well. And some of the, the captains, they didn't like me and, and probably rightly so or wrongly so, a combination of both. And they, they kicked me off the ship. And I could have, and I was about to go on another ship. It wasn't an issue because- the <laughs> guy, you, you can't yeah, fire me, yeah, I quit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I got another job. It's yeah, better. that's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it, dumb. It doesn't I mean, with that experience, anyone will take you. And the, the guy that actually I worked for that ran the spa, him and I are still close. We spoke the other day. You know, interesting. I've seen him a handful of times, maybe two or three times since I was 21. And we still talk like it was, you know, just, just yesterday. I love that. I, I fucking, I love that. And I'm not ignorant to the fact that so many men don't have that as a side note, don't have that male connection, you know? Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. And I just spoke to him the other day. We're talking about just we're talking about watches, and we're just talking about coming back to coming back to Athens. I want to try and get back there in the next couple of months. So um, I get kicked off. But what I didn't tell you was that you know my brother, um, younger brother, five years. You know he, he went a different direction, and he hit drugs pretty hard, like really hard, from a very young age, like 10, 11 years old. And you know that was a very difficult family situation as well. You know, my brother and I would be punching on, you don't do that with your family. Like it's just, it sucks. You know, he was high on drugs all the time. He was abusive to my parents. My parents were abusive to him and it was just this fucking cesspool of abuse, you know? And so part of me getting away was getting away from that shit. Like I moved out at home early because we were just fighting all the time and I was making things worse because I just wouldn't stand for what he was doing, you know? And um, my mum said, look, it's getting worse can you come back? We need you. And you know, the enmeshment with my mum and the entanglement was like, oh, I've got to make my mum happy and maybe it's time I come back. I miss my friends. It's been a couple of years. So, you know, I made all the reasons or excuses and I went back. And I was a really, I felt like I was a, a Zen monk, right? Coming back, but with two, three months in a familiar environment and then it was worse than what I was before. Yeah, it's the old Ram Dass. If you think you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. Oh, <laughs> months, shit. Mu- months with the family is a whole different ball game. I yep. don't even think I could sign up for that right now at 38. <laughs> I don't think I could spend months with my family at this point. It was hectic, man. It was hectic. And, uh, and you know, side note, I'll fast forward a moment. And, you know, I'm probably you know, going to cry again, but my brother and I now have the most amazing relationship. And fuck, I miss him, man, so much. When he comes here to visit, I can't wait for you to meet him. Fuck yeah. Because he's such a good guy. And um, I fucking, I, I miss him so much, man, so much. And he, he got, I just try to get him clean so much, but he got clean on himself. He had a, a very bad trip and he went there and he said, I'm done. And he started taking his life back. And that was 11, 12 years ago. He's got a beautiful family. I have a niece that I haven't seen yet. So we're very, very connected and close now in all the ways. Um, and, you know, coming back though at the age of 21, 
took about five, six years or four or five years before he, he got clean and started making changes. You know, the paranoia that comes with that, the violence, the, the suppression of emotions, the, the, the mistrust, like just the difficulty that came with that um, being in that environment for all of us, right? It just and it wore us down massively. You know, I, I remember my dad and always me trying to wanting to impress my dad consciously or unconsciously. Oh, it's those those people up the road. It's their fault. They'd bring your brother in. Let's can you get some of your guys and go sort them out? All right, dad. So we go out there and we sort them out. And it just makes my brother more angry. And he just finds new friends, or he just goes back there and he just takes drugs by himself. Or it just, you know, my dad couldn't see that it was maybe him mm. that had contributed to why my brother was how he was, you know. Um, but sometimes old habits die hard and you can teach an old dog new tricks. I believe that, but the dog needs to want to learn. Yeah. And so whilst I have, you know, a healthy relationship with my father now, I'm also under no expectation that he's going to change. And so I meet him where he's at and I accept that. And there's a piece in that. There's a yeah. piece in that. Yeah, that's been a big one for me too. I've 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 come miles with my dad and he's done, you know, all all, all the work. He's done so much for himself, you know, just like your brother. You can't you can uh lead a horse to water, right? That kind of that old that old saying. He um I've done ayahuasca with him a couple of times wow. and uh That's epic. What was great though? I mean, the, those were those are pretty more than the experience itself was him saying yes to the experience with me, 100%. right? Like that was that was the big piece cuz there wasn't he didn't quite let himself get to the finish line. You know, every time there was a second cup offered, he'd throw up his arms at a big X and be like, no, no, I'm good. You know, and I'd, I'd be like, well, are, are you, you know, are you, are you on the fence here? Are you, I, mean, I don't want to push you one way or the other. I need your consent, but uh, tell me where you're at. You know, and I finally talked him into a second cup one time when we were down in Panama. It was really potent Shipibo medicine. And um, he said he felt like his soul was leaving his body like a balloon. And he's like, I need to get grounded. I need to get grounded. And some, uh, one of our neighbors was like, uh, he's like, oh, can, Mia, is this would help? You know, this guy from Switzerland and he rubbed a little peppermint oil and it felt like it just pulled this balloon back down to earth. And he felt super grounded and happy. And he was just so much gratitude for that. And then afterwards he was like, fuck, that was my opportunity. And I didn't say yes. You know, <laughs> But we, we had a, we had a deep mushroom dive and, um, I think that that might've been, you know, like I was getting downloads on less medicine because no one heals themselves in one journey and I want them to be able to come back to this yeah. and not just have the rails blown off, but hasn't done medicine with me since, but he has, he did spend, I think a month in Rishikesh with Muji out wow. in India. Yeah. And that was right at the beginning of quarantine last year. So oh, shit. really cool trajectory to see him wow. and to feel him, to feel the peace inside. So yeah. Yeah, good stuff there. I remember seeing Muji in India actually. It was a few years ago now. I seen like a, it was a, a day lecture. It was interesting to spend some time with him. There was a couple of hundred people there. Yeah, how was it? Yeah. Um, mix. It was profound. Yeah, and I think that's the. I think that's part of it. As I'm reflecting on it now, it was profound and it was, eh, a little mediocre. Yeah, but I think that's it. That's that's the magic, right? It's it's. Can you bring the profound into everyday life and treat it as such? Because I had this expectation. I think it was an expectation hangover, as my wife, Christine Hassel, would say, right? <laughs> it was like, oh, this is, this is Muji. This is going to be fucking epic. What a gift. Like, this is, oh, I'm going to. And I was like, oh, that's it. He wasn't saying anything, anything I didn't know. Yeah. But did I know it? Was it integrated? 
you know, I was I was young back then. I was like 20. It? Yeah. I was Boyd Vardy talks about that in yeah. uh, Cathedral of the Wild, taking yeah. his dad out for one of those and like just having all the fucking expectations in the world for his father and hoping to have the rails blown off and then both of them leaving on a plane and he's just hanging his head like, fuck, man. That was our shot. It didn't happen. You know? Yeah. But, but what did it happen? Is that what exactly needed to happen? As I reflect on that experience now and other experiences where I've been disappointed or, you know, and I remember arguing with it was my, one of my closest friends, Joe, because he was with me. Um, I was arguing with Joe because I wanted it to be profound and Joe was the, feeling similar to me, but I didn't want to own it. And Joe was like, hey, it was okay. I said, what's wrong with you? What do you mean it was okay? What do you mean you want to leave early? We should stay here. This is fucking Muji. And I just went off and I was still angry back then. I still, I'm still angry now. But, you know, <laughs> but, but it was a different type of anger now. I think I've got a little more mastery over it. Um, but I, was, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't accept it. But that's the thing. Like, he did say amazing things. Muji did express very profound things around the simplicity of life and how to be with each other. But I think I just couldn't accept it. And, you know, I think as humans, we just don't want to accept what is simple. We, we need this big thing to make it worthy of us actually doing or making a change in our lives. But what if we don't? What if it just needs to be that simple? Oh, what if we just need to actually set our alarm at 6 a.m. instead of just sleeping in? What if it's just that? Yeah. What if it's just that? Yeah, I remember training right when I got on the Ultimate Fighter. I was training with Noguera, and he brought in Machida and Anderson Silva, and like I didn't even recognize like that how important that was for me as a fighter, not as a trajectory, but just to be in the presence of masters. And they would drill the same shit over and over again every fucking day in jujitsu. They were working on guillotines almost exclusively from half guard, full guard, side control, like just just as escapes and like ways to threaten and get out and back to their feet. And I was like, do you guys do anything else? And he's like, oh, buddy, we got to practice the basics every day. That's what you use, you know? And I was like, really? Like, there's no like fucking flying armbar shit that you guys are up to? Like, the, the what about that fucking knockout kick with Steven Seagal sitting for a row? Like, <laughs> like, that's not basic shit, you know? I mean, it is today, but- that's all they do. They do that over and over again, you know, and on the, whether that's on the spiritual level, the physical level, the martial arts level, the mental level, there's always something that is super grounded and practical. And I think the recognition of that is, is one of the secrets in life, like to recognize that and to say like, oh, okay, it's not fucking way out here. It's not going to take, it might take 30 years to master it, but it's still going to take those really simple things to get there. I am. Um- it reminds me of something. The elite are elite because they've mastered the basics. And that's something I learned working a lot with spec ops guys in Australia, like the SAS and commands. I ended up not becoming one, but working really closely with them with mindset and PTSI, coming back from, from war and re- helping them recover and so forth. Just drilling the basics, the simple things. That's how they have become elite. And I think obviously that in your early experience, I think you Probably, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but something that you seem to value now and you've learned as well, like master the basics. Oh, yeah. Whether I mean, it, yeah. Even with Bear, you know, he's been going to 10th Planet periodically. I'm yeah. not a drill sergeant. Yeah. He goes a couple of days a week for a month and doesn't show up for a month. You yeah. know, I'm not pushing him any, by any means. But he'll complain sometimes about like, I already know this. He says, my instead of I. You know, I already know this, dad. I already know <laughs> this. And so I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, Bear, this is stuff you do. I, I still do it. Like you never stop doing that. You never stop doing the warm up. You never stop doing these basic things because they are, you want to ingrain them so that you're not thinking about it. You want it to become second nature. And that means doing it every day, even though you already know it. But yeah, that's, that's across the board, you know? I wonder, man, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but I wonder if, you know, I don't think we do anything long enough, consistently enough, with enough intention 
to actually reap the benefit of it. I mean, what's to say 30 years of meditation every day is actually enough? And I'm not saying there's an end point. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But let's, just, let's assume there isn't an end point. We're just talking about infinite growth and evolution and expansion. Is 30 years, of 40, 50 years even of meditation, is that enough to get you where you think you need to be or think you need to go or think what you need to embody is true for you? I don't know. I would say probably not. There's probably no way to, to know because yeah. your bar gets raised of, of where too. you want it to be as you go. I mean, at least, I mean, I, there... I don't want to say it should, but it's quite likely. I think it's natural. That the bar raises on its own because you see where you're at and you know that there's more to go. It's kind we of want, like if, we want more. if you were hiking through fog on a mountain and you think the top's coming and, and you had charted where the top was and then the fog clears a little bit and you see, oh, there's just a little more. Oh, there's just false a little top. more. Oh, there's ah, just a little more. False summit, hate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's, it's, I don't want to derail you. You know, talk about, you know, life after that. You started, you know, when did you immediately start working with these guys? Uh, did you end up at a university? Like where, where, who, who started to piece together the work that you do now, you know, at that point and transitioning yeah, with yeah. family. So I came back, came back and, you know, applied to uh, just fascinated with the human mind and, and behavior. So I applied for university as a mature age student at like 21 years old, 22 years old. That's apparently mature age. Um, and I and I uh, got in, not sure how, but I got in. I, I remember now doing the test too. Uh, and I studied psychology, so behavioral science, social psychology, and just really sunk my teeth into that. And, and it took me a while to do that. I don't know, I've got a master's degree as well, but overall it took me like 10 years to get my degrees because I did a lot of part-time work and I would travel a lot. I would go to Europe a lot, I'd go to Asia a lot, I'd New Zealand, I'd just travel a lot and I'd just defer for a semester and travel and do that. But also while studying, not just um, university, I was also studying other mind-body body modalities like neuro-linguistic programming, hypnosis, psych K, other counselling methodologies. I, I worked in um, uh, men's homeless shelters. I, I worked, and, and this is all giving my time as part of my university as well. I worked in the youth prison systems too, like really understanding trauma and, and understanding dysfunctional families because I came from one at a, at a deeper level, right? Um, and at that same time, how I met a lot of these um, spec ops guys and worked with Olympians and elite fighters such as yourself was I opened up a CrossFit gym with a business partner and we had one of the first CrossFit gyms in the world. It must have been the top 500 or something. So maybe the third or fourth in Australia. Wow. And so because of that, we really knew, it was like 2006, 2007, we were super new Everyone wanted to know, oh, what's, you know, the Institute of Sports, what are you guys doing? What's this CrossFit thing? It was starting to really pick up. And so I think timing by default, we just got a lot of exposure. You know, I worked with a professional soccer team as well. We took, I went to China with them. I had a lot of amazing experiences, you know, um, and met some of my closest friends as well, like working with the um, special forces guys too. you, You know, it's just, these guys are elite. I mean, they, they come with a very different mindset. So it helped refine my tools and help me be a better coach and a better mindset coach and understand the emotional body better and, and family systems and trauma and, PT and you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome and, and infliction and all of that. And, but I never was dealing with my stuff. I was still, mm. you know, I was preaching, but I wasn't practicing what I was preaching. <laughs> But I was becoming somewhat successful, I think, in um, in my life. You know, at least at least from a status perspective, which was filling up my ego and helping me feel better. And I was also doing meaningful work, and I was really helping a lot of everyday people as well, just get fit. But I, I just I was getting tired of teaching people how to squat, so to say, so to speak. You know, like I just I wanted more. So I sold my businesses in 
2012, just to my partner. We didn't get along too well. He was a he was a police officer. Not that I love police officers. Um, it's just that he he was just one of those very rigid guys, and um, I wasn't rigid. And yeah, you're th- trying to break down the rigidity within yourself and those around you, and I'm sure that didn't. <laughs> he was didn't a beautiful mirror, where you were at. Yeah. yeah, which I didn't appreciate and accept <laughs> at the time. And he's a, and a really kind-hearted guy as well. But again, I couldn't see that through my own arrogance and defensiveness. Essentially, that's what it was. You know, my fear. Um, so I didn't appreciate him. So you know, moved on from that, and I don't know. I tried my stuff. At, you know, I was still studying. I tried my my hand at different things. Like I, I got involved in the corporate world and. Um, you know, I also studied uh, sustainability and renewable energy tech as well. So I, again, back to that UN Secretary General, I wanted to make big impact, collective impact. So I, I studied big systems, macro systems, economic systems. Um, uh, how does renewable energy tech fit into a world that is growing very rapidly? How can it serve humanity in a way from a poverty perspective, but also give, you know, put food on the plates of, um, of, of people that need it? Like all these different ideas you know i went to dubai to the largest um uh, renewable energy um and sustainability uh what's it called conference in in the in the middle east and i and i had a project there that i tried i was just doing all these different things i was lost man just trying to find my place you know i felt really lost and i i saw all my friends at that time as well just i don't want to say being successful but they just found their path and they were content and I was restless. So fucking restless, man. And so I'd just be doing all these different things and being low on money and running up credit card debt and, you know, my relationship sucked. I was massive amounts of infidelity and cheating and just being dishonest and being angry, never physically violent, but emotionally abusive, you know, just really not honouring myself, not honouring them you know, pretending to do the inner work, but I wasn't because I wouldn't go deep. So it was a lot of years of that, a lot of years of that. What do you think was the turning point? The turning point very distinctly was um, I was in a relationship um, and we were together for about three years and I really, I really cared for her and I really loved her, but I was also cheating a lot. I mean a lot, man, like, you know, prostitution, one night stands, like all of that stuff. And when I say a lot, there were times where, uh, it's an arbitrary term, but it was one too many. I was dishonest, full stop, right? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't own what I wanted in the relationship and I projected that on her. And um, she found out that I was cheating. And, you know, witnessing her pain firsthand and knowing that I'm not responsible for her pain, but I contributed to that. Because she could, you know, find out and be happy or whatever. She's responsible for her feelings, but I contributed to that. That was me. That was on me. That was my dishonesty. And the pain that she just, that just, and it woke me up, man. It shook me up big time. And what it did was a lot of shame came flooding to the surface of my awareness that I'd been suppressing for a very long time and guilt, obviously, and remorse, but shame. And that shame accessed all this repressed trauma that I had forgotten about. And I lost my shit. I didn't know what to fucking do. And so I sat with myself and I'll tell you two stories. I'll tell you the the first one, I sat with myself and I said, I I need to do something different. I can't keep living this life. My businesses are failing. 
one month I'm making lots of money, the next three months I'm dry. I'm fighting all the time. I don't mean physically fighting, sort of stopped that by mid, mid twenties, late twenties. But I'm fighting all the time. Like everything's everything's difficult. Everything's not a challenge. Everything is uphill, man. And like I'm wearing this badge of honor. Like the harder it is, and I get through it, look at me, look how good I am. So it's a cry for help still, right? And I said, I either keep going down this path and either end up dying because I would would literally just eat myself from within or I can make some changes that are really scary and I don't know what that looks like or where to start, but I've got to do something. And so I made that decision and and I didn't give myself a choice of not to attempt to change. And so I stopped working with the business partners I was working with because they were toxic and unhealthy. Um, I, I gave up my, my businesses that I had. I stopped working and I started living on my credit card and I started immersing myself in personal growth. Now, we chose to stay together, right, which was un, uncanny to do that because I ended up telling her everything and everything was a lot. It wasn't, it was a lot. And we ended up staying together still for a few months at least and working through. So I said, I'm going to do anything. I'm going to do everything I can. Let's, let's go all in. No, I went to, we went to counseling. I just, I was spending thousands of bucks a week on, you know, that I didn't have. Right. But I wanted to heal. I wanted to shift. I wanted to do, and so we were doing it together. And so there were times where she was very, we were very connected and we were working through it. And most of the time it was very difficult. It was I can't believe you did this. It was, I mean, she, she even got violent as well. And then, yeah. and, and well, how do you build back that trust? Right. Like that, that seems like a <laughs> insurmountable, and especially it was. when there's layers that oh. keep getting dropped of, well, actually, you know, that wasn't the only time. Yeah. Was, yeah uh, and that happened over, yeah. over, over probably a month. It took me that, you know, I didn't have the courage. I was weak. Um, you know, tough exterior, but weak interior. And, um, Again, I should, and I would never hit her, but I had to restrain her, I had to hold her. And our, our therapist at the time said, look, that can't keep going on. And I was surprised because I was, re, I mean, I was you know, in, being together, we were re, both retraining our nervous systems in different ways because we were facing our stuff. Like she had her stuff too, right? And I had my stuff and we were facing that instead of running from it. And so that was very healing, that in and of itself. But I went, you know, spiritual healers, shamans, um, energy healers, coaches, therapists, counselors, trauma, trauma therapists. I was working with everyone, man. Like I went all the way in. And I remember one point, I was going so deep that it was, it was getting very dark, right? And so suicide was coming up. Even when we were sort of together and we weren't together, and it, was, it was like this, right? And I mean highs and lows with, within that period after she found out, which was replicating my childhood, mm. right? And eventually we both made the call, we're not doing this anymore, I'm not doing this, I'm done. Like it can't, we just can't keep going like this. But a time before that, and this was the second story I want to share with you, I would spend a lot of time in the ocean and I was in the water one day and I was just, I was feeling very dense and very, very scared. And I, at this point, I'd been in it for months of just cycling and circling and drudging up shit, like trauma and pain and fear. I didn't know what to do with it. And I was just sitting in the water crying. I was just crying and I was just sobbing and boiling. And there weren't many people there that day. And it, wasn't a, well, it wasn't a very nice day, but I'd get in the water irrespective, raining, hail, shine, whatever. And I said to myself, and I looked up at the heavens and I said to God, I said, I know we don't talk often, but right now I don't know where to go. 
I'm, I don't know where to go. I need, I need something. I need a sign. And I said, thought to myself, I need to be very specific. And I got to trust. I said, if I'm meant to stay on this path and I'm not meant to end this, either with numbing or with suicide, then I need you to show me a dolphin right now. Boom, dolphin. Probably about in feet, it must have been 30 feet away. Not super close, but not that far. And I just started crying more and I thought, okay, I've got to go in more. I've got to go deeper. So at that point, I'd done some plant medicine, but only after I'd explored myself at a deeper level through familiar states of consciousness, shadow work through um, without being in a heightened state of consciousness, like an alternative state, right? And then I started going into plant medicine a little more as well and breath work a lot more and more therapy and, and more, more coaching and counseling and energy work, like really working with undoing a lot of the previous sexual partners that I had and the tethering to that, the unconscious stuff and the emotional work and the family system stuff and like really going deep into all of that. And I just progressed. And there were times still where I would board my house up and I would, you know, engage in my own dark retreat. And I would, I would just, I would fast and I would be, and, and I was, again, I was so interested in Indian asceticism back then. So I use a lot of that to access parts of me, my spirituality, my emotions. I, I, I couldn't touch any other way. And I spent a lot of time on my, on my own and a lot of time in solitude. Um, at the beginning, it felt like isolation. I felt really alone again. And I had to relive that and know how to be with that differently to how I was when I was a kid. And then it turned to solitude. I was craving being alone. And, and that's where I started decoupling myself from all these things in my, in my world, like whether it's my mom or the approval of my father or having to look a certain way with my friends. I started to let go of that and I started to identify myself as who am I? Like Ramana Maharshi asks, who are you? Like, who am I? Like really who am I? Without the bullshit, without, as, as the trauma was coming out and, and we, we'd broken up at that point, I was a massive relief and I practiced celibacy and, and, and semen retention and all of that because I wanted to go deeper within. What access do I have within here? Because clearly I've been causing a lot of problems and a lot of pain for myself and others. I've got to go more internal. And so I spent, you know, a few years doing that. Like I nearly went bankrupt. Like it was, it was tough, but it was necessary. I yeah. had to dissolve the ego, man. My ego was very strong. I mean, it was only a few years ago, literally four years ago, where I was scrubbing toilets and washing cars with, 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 with a master's degree. That was very fucking humbling because I needed some money, but I didn't want to work. Well, no, I did want to work, sorry. I couldn't even get a job. Couldn't get a full-time job. I even fucked around with my resume and said that I had people in oil and gas that had, had, had really high positions, said that I worked with them and I wouldn't even get an interview. And I had the experience, like I knew what I, I just couldn't get, I couldn't get money. So I had to work my friend at a panel beating shop. I needed to eat. Like my friend would pick me up every now and then and say, get in the car, we're going down to Peaches, buy new, you know, a couple of weeks worth of groceries. Like that, that was where I was, man. It wasn't that long ago. I was scrubbing toilets. I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck am I doing? I'm scrubbing toilets. You know, those guys pissing shitting everywhere. <laughs> it's fucking <laughs> tradesmen, man. They <laughs> give a fuck. <laughs> it was, I didn't, I didn't, but I needed it. I, I needed that in retrospect. And even then I knew I needed it and I stayed in it. And I stayed in it and it helped me rebuild myself and rebuild the person that I wanted to be in the world and how I wanted to treat other people. And I made that vow in, during that period of time that honesty is where I want to be, no matter how difficult the conversation, no matter how much judgment I think someone's going to give me, 
or if they're going to reject me or humiliate me for my truth, I have to speak it. It's such a big one. It's it's a, it's a point not to be overlooked. Yeah, uh, I think like the Ram Dass's main guru, you know, telling him tell the truth and love everyone. That's it. Tell the truth and love everyone. Can that's, be that he, that's 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 Ram Dass's main dude. That flowered Ram Dass. Tell the truth and love everyone. And uh, you know the first agreement, the four agreements. Be impeccable with your word. It's number one, right? Like all the teachings of the Toltec, all the many books that they've come out with, you know, Don, aside from Don Miguel Ruiz, the mastery of that lineage, be impeccable with your word. Number one, first on the list. It's fucking tough too. It's still tough. I mean, it, it, I'm a lot better at it now, but it's still tough. I still have the, the jitters that come up sometimes because I also care what people think and I don't want to, so a couple of things. I care what people think um, to some degree especially the people that matter to me particularly, right? I don't want to hurt them with that truth. And we have to weigh up the cost. Like if we don't speak that truth, would that hurt them more? I mean, the answers are not unequivocal. Well, not always, but most of the time, yes. You know, depending on the circumstances, of course, but most of the time, yes. But, so that's, that's, the, that's the path. That's the work though, is working through that is the shame that comes up, is the feeling of rejection that comes up, of the unworthiness of the littleness that comes up. And, continuing to be with that. And that, that's my commitment to myself is can I just continue to walk the path of truth irrespective of what's around me? And it's not, it, you know, with what's happening in the world now, man, as an example, there's parts of me that want to speak more to it at a deeper and different level. And I have to sit with that. And I think, where is my voice best served? Is it served in the space that I'm in now with respect to helping people break free of their traumas, teaching them about relationships, sharing my own experience about it because relationships are so rich. They're a rich, fertile ground for growth, right? And expansion or is it speaking to some of the geopolitical issues that are transpiring, the economic issues, the cultural issues, the, the more collective compounded issues? And I think it's a combination of both, but to put, there's a part of me that wants to speak more to that because that's, it's, it's been a part of me for so long. I mean, that little six-year-old kid, United Nations Secretary General. But I have to play with that. It's a constant dance. And, and I guess what I'm, I'm attempting to say with all of that is I think it's a constant evaluation. Like I, I don't think it's static. I don't think it's just one way. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's very clear and very direct and it's very certain. And other times it's dancing with it, right? And, and being certain within the dance. And, and that's, that's where I'm at now. I think. Most of us are there. We're not perfect in that, no matter how much we want to be. Um, but I still struggle with truth sometimes. But fuck, am I eons better than what I was? More advanced and proficient? Big time. Big time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think with the, the, the collective consciousness and the collective um, <laughs> lies that are going on in the world, so it's, 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 it is important to, to break through and, and you know, of course, between me and JP Sears and, you know, the clicks that we run with out here, like we're, we're well aware of aware. what time it is, what's going on in the world. And we voice that from time to time. And, and at the same time within that dance, yeah. there still is, how do I ground this back to yes. everyday life? Like what is the practical practice in my everyday life that I, that I can do? What are the ways that I can show up in relationships, in my job, online, wherever. The immediate impact, right? Yeah. The immediate impact. Exactly. Because there's, it's, if we just leave it out there, 
right? Then we're just finger pointing, which we see online all over the fucking place. If we don't bring some task back home on how to live better, then we're, we're missing the point of what's executable. You know, like what are the, what are the decisions I can make on a daily basis that actually matter that, that maybe won't change the whole collective, but it always has to start from within. And then that trickles out to everyone that we're around. And I yeah. think it's that oscillation, right? Yeah. That you're speaking about. Yeah. I, I've been, I've been battling with that for a while because, you know, there's, there's this part of me that oh, I want to impact a billion people. I want to change the world. And I still do. And Dunbar's rule, right? Dunbar's law is like, well, you maximum you're going to know about 150 people, 200 people, right? But intimately, like really intimately where you can impact people at a really deep level. I'm not saying we can't do that. You can't do that with your podcast. You, you interview someone or you say something profound and someone just goes, whoa, that, that's it. That, that I'm gonna, and they, their trajectory for life just goes boom. You can do that. And you don't even know the person, 100%. And think of if you show up or if I show up in a greater level of truth, truth and I impact my wife and I show up to her in the most meaningful way, and, 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 she, and irrespective of what impact she makes on others because she feels more grounded, safer, better, more enlightened for the interaction, whatever it may be, right? What about just the intrinsic value of that conversation or that interaction and her life changes or is more grounded or whatever the positive attributes that we assign to, you know, growth in life happens just in her? I think my job's done. Yeah, and that's, you know, from Dolores Cannon who's, you know, one of my favorites, but definitely write some out there shit, out there spiritual books. Uh, she, she, you know, she was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but um, not, for the listeners. Familiar with her, but not. Yeah, I've yeah. mentioned her before. She's had some, a lot of videos work. resurfaced. She, she, passed a, she passed on in 2014, but uh, she has several books, maybe like over a dozen. One of my favorites is The Three Waves of Volunteers in a New Earth. And she used to do a specific type of hypnotherapy or past life regression and things like that. Initially just starting off with, you know, uh, smoking cessation and typical hypnosis stuff. And then all these past lives kept coming up with the people that were drawn to her. And she found across continents and, you know, decades of doing this, over three decades of doing this, there was a shit ton of parallels. And one of the things that kept coming up for people was not feeling like they were doing enough in the world. Like I'm not, I don't, I know what my purpose is, but I don't, feel like the impact that I have is where I'm supposed to be. I don't think it's impacting enough. And across the board, as they got to the high self or the higher being, whatever you want to call that language, soul, oversoul, um, across the board, it was always enough. Whether it was impacting one person or two people, if it was one, if you had one child, if you were married, but you never had kids, and you impacted your partner. It was always enough. And Charles Eisenstein says that too. And more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, right? Any decision that is made for the good, any action that is done for the good of all is is reverberated through the all. Because as we've experienced in plant medicines and many other journeys and altered states, there is no such thing as separation. That is the grand illusion. We are interconnected and interdependent and interrelated with all things. And so that, that, that ripple, right? That ripple is felt through the one universe, as, as Chuck says, one song, right? We're singing the one song. We're in that orchestra. And however small and quiet the whisper of that sound is in your interaction in relation to another, it impacts the whole fucking thing. And I think that, that to me, from, from 
reading books that are way out there from Dolores Cannon to very practical from the genius Charles Eisenstein and everything in between, that's something that keeps circling back, you know? Because, I mean, this podcast is, we're top 10 in health and fitness, but we're a pissant compared to Aubrey, who's a pissant compared to Rogan, you know? Like, you think of the latter and yeah. the game of comparison, and, it's, sure. and that's come up for me, but that's the same thing. It always circles back to that, however small. Any action done for the good is felt through everything. What a relief. Yeah. Isn't, isn't, I mean, I, I feel a wave of relief coming over me as you were just saying, just speaking those words and what I'm making them mean and what they mean to me. It's, it's, it's a sense of fuller acceptance. Like just what a fucking relief. Now that doesn't stop me. I think we think that, you know, acceptance is complacency. It doesn't stop me from wanting to create or be or be more intrigued and curious and impact, but it gives me a sense of relief in terms of, oh, I can be even more deeply grateful for what I have and what I'm doing and who I am in the world just here and now. It's enough. Yeah. It's just enough. A lot of the medicine journeys that I've had recently have circled back to um, being content. And people think if you're content, then you're, there's no drive. It sucks the wind out of your sails for goal attainment or anything like that. And it just reframes it. It doesn't suck the wind out of the sails. It doesn't mean I don't want more. I don't want to impact bigger. Or I don't want to think of new ways to, to influence yeah. you know, my communities and people outside of that. But with the contentment, it's like there's the recognition of, oh, yeah, we're fucking doing it. Oh, yeah. Like we're, you and I are doing it right now. Like this is it. Yeah. We're fucking doing the thing, you know, like we're, 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 and we're doing well within that, you know? And it's, it's a, there is a peace that is accessed from the ability to tap into being content. That doesn't nullify goals or drive or motivation. It actually gives space for that to operate yes. in a healthy way. Right? Yeah. Massively, man. I was, I was talking about this. I was sending a voice note to a friend of mine this morning about, he was just sharing with me that he feels really stuck and stagnant in life and he's got some financial issues. And when I say financial issues, it's just he's trying to expand his business but he needs more capital to do so. It's a, call it a champagne problem, so to speak, but also trying to look after his family, make sure all the bills are paid and everything else. And, and I said to him, I said, man, you know, in my past, what has really helped me has been that um, gratitude and acceptance and that look what I have, it's so much, it's just enough. Like this morning, I'll give you a few examples. This morning I was training and um, I, I recently, a few weeks ago, got a couple of um, 20 kilo, uh, 244 pound kettlebells and I was using them today. So That's my like, favorite weight, by the way. Yeah. It's, my, it's my absolute favorite. Yeah, it's my favorite weight. <laughs> That's so good. You're such a beast as well. And then, so I was double snatching with them, right? Double kettlebell snatching with them and I was doing some weighted pull-ups and stuff. And um, I was looking at them, I'm thinking, so grateful that I could just go online and click a few buttons and have them come to me and not worry about being in credit card debt or anything like that. I'm in a very different position where I am now. I don't say that to gloat at all. It's just that I've, as I've done my inner work, my outer world has, is not volatile anymore. Right. And I was sharing with him the, the, the power of gratitude, which is in, in essence, I have enough. doesn't mean you don't want more, like what you just said now, but I have enough. And I looked at my shoe rack and I've got some shoes there. And there's a pair of shoes there that I've had for, it must be, I'm going to say 13 or 14 years, right? And I've worn them only a handful of times. Now, those shoes, I remember 
those exact shoes were the shoes that I would, they were in a, a pair of Innovates, they were mud claws because I was doing a, a mud race, right? And I needed mud, needed mud claws. And I would be, this was 25, 26, and I wasn't great with money then. And I would be on the website and I'd, and I'd go keep revisiting the website every day. Should I get them? Should I not? I've got to put them on my credit card. I'm going to go in more debt. They're, you know, 250 bucks. Or, oh, I shouldn't get it. And I'll do that for months. And then I'd get them, then I'd feel guilty about it. There's old money patterns from my dad, right? And I'd feel guilty about it. And I, and I still have them. Then I looked at them and I smiled and I thought, fuck. I remember when, because I, had, I was wearing shoes this morning. No, I wasn't actually wearing shoes this morning. That came from looking at them and remembering on the weekend, I went to Enchanted Rock and I was walking down. And I said, with Christine, I shared it with that story. I couldn't even afford shoes. Like, oh, I would make myself think I couldn't afford them. And just being in that gratitude, like, now I can. And it's a simple thing, a pair of shoes, just a pair of shoes. That acceptance of, wow, I have that. I have access to a clean water that I can drink. I have enough. There's something really special that then comes from, that is born from that place because now the focus isn't on what I don't have. It's on what I do have and I have so much, even if they're just small things. I love that, man. Absolutely. Adyashanti talks about that. The, the trick of the ego is to always be in a state of need and to always find problems and issues with no matter where you're at, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, <clears throat> Many different ways, depending on who you study from, how you want to frame the ego sure. and things like that. But the trick of the self, you might say, and, and small self, not well, big the pretend self, self, right? Yeah. yeah, the pretend self. And uh, that the awareness of that is, is a beautiful thing to be aware of, to become aware of, to, make, to be made conscious, right? Like, oh, wait a minute, there's a, some part of me that's inherent in all things, some part of me that will always want more and always say that I don't have enough and always look for an issue with what I do have and always need to rearrange the house and always want, you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> oh, okay. As long as I understand that, then that can help me reframe when I actually do something. It's not on autopilot or it's not because of, uh, you know, this quiet whisper that's become, you know, that has actually taken the, the wheel and is driving the car now, you know? But you, you brought up your incredible wife, Christine Hassler. We spent so much time talking about relationships that failed. Let's talk about this amazing marriage <laughs> and this beautiful partnership that you have. Um, I have known Christine longer than I've known you. And, and right when she brought you in, I was like, fuck yeah, here you go. Like I could see the match. I could feel the match. Um, but it wasn't until we were out in Sedona for Fit for Service where I really got to experience both yours and her medicine in tandem. And I think without question, you know, people that were a part of that experience, the entire week was a medicine journey, you know, mm. non plant medicine, yeah. but very much a medicine journey. Parangi played his first live set since quarantine had started. Awesome. And, and it was fucking incredible. And so the, I say like all of these things, we had a, layers of them, breath work with Anahata, um, so many breakthrough experiences that were giving us altered states of consciousness mm. and breaking us out of our shells. And you guys come along and, and you already know this because I, I mentioned it to you while we were there. I was, I mean, it's a lot when you go through an ecstatic dance. It's a lot. You move a lot of energy, you, especially if you're really into it. You know, you, people move a lot in breath work. And even though I wasn't yeah. participating in it, guiding it takes a lot as well, three different groups. And so by the time you guys came to deliver your medicine, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to fucking listen to these guys for a bit. We'll talk archetypes and then I'm going to take a little nap and actually restore myself. And, and I got to participate in that. 
And across the board, you turn, you guys turned people fucking inside out. Like I thought this was my day off. And that, that, and that broke so many of us down, myself included. Just the memory of that touches me. The memory of that opens me up. And it wasn't just to break you down, not build you up. Like it, it cracked everyone across the board, universally wide open in a way where I was just, and partly maybe it's because I didn't have any expectations of it at all, but I was just floored. It was my favorite part of the event. And I think a lot of people really felt that way. Like, holy shit. Talk about the container that you guys have created for yourselves and, and some of the practices that have been able you to step into a place where you can deliver that kind of medicine. I, I adore her, man. And she sees me. And for the first time in my life, she, I've been met by someone. With, she's human, so very little to no judgment. That's a very new thing for me. It's a very new thing. And um, to not feel judgment, no, to not be judged. And to not have to retaliate from that place of feeling threatened. Um, Although sometimes I still do because I don't see her for who she is in those moments. But the intention of our container together is to just keep coming back to love and keep coming back to what would love do now. And keep coming back to why we got together and how we complement each other and how we um, trigger each other as well and the magic in that. And then to share that with the world in experiences such as that um, to the best that we can um, to willing participants. And clearly the 150, 60, 70 people that were there were very willing participants, yourself included, you know. Um, I'm glad you didn't take a nap. <laughs> I'm glad you did because your energy was needed there as well. Um, and so I just, I feel there's such um, disruption in uh, our sense of selves in the world. You know, and not to focus on what's not working um, because it's a beautiful opportunity to bring cohesiveness and unity back into our lives, right? Um, I feel men and women are very separate. Um, biologically speaking, um, or, or gender-wise, I feel there's a massive disparity in our society at the moment. Um, our masculine, feminine energetics are disparate as well, for, within and also with each other. And the intention of that experience was to bring back into unity um, the masculine, feminine within, but to show each other that we're so much more similar than what we think. Ultimately, if I had to just break it down, it's we're more similar than what we think and can we celebrate our complementary differences? That's it. That's it. Can we celebrate our differences and not be threatened by it? Not be threatened by, oh, you're a man? My perception of a man is that you're going to abuse me, you're going to try and control me, therefore all men are bad. And that's not a conscious thought, but it's such an unconscious thought that is permeating the minds of many women. Not all, of course, but it's many. It's in the field. It's in it's the field, man. No question. And so we've got to break that down because that's, there's some truth in that. But all men aren't like that. But the nervous system feels that. And so if the nervous system feels that, the whole brain and body is going to be hypervigilant and categorize everything or everyone that looks similar to that, i.e. man, as bad. And then we have many people doing that. And same with, with men towards women as well. They're, they're less than. Or whatever the, whatever the, um, 
the thought is or the belief is. And so can we break that down? And you would have seen in that experience there were very few words. It was all experiential, nonverbal. And just going to the, the truth of it and the core of it, it's like, can we fucking drop the facade? Can we drop the armor? Both of us. Both of us meaning both men, both women. Can we embrace a more whole sense of self? Uh, and that's really meaningful work for me personally and for us, for Christine and I in the world. It's something that really invigorates and excites me. And, you know, from a perspective of enough, I don't think that will ever be enough for me to start. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm being facetious a little here. But it's, yeah, that's well, where I'm it's at. good that that drive remains because, Big yeah, <laughs> there, there is no shortage of people, you know. There's no shortage of uh, the work we get to clean up within ourselves and within yes. our communities. And um, it, is, it is a sense of, you know, like that, that's a prime example. That experience is a prime example on if you show up and you're willing, if you have the intention to, to drop the armor and participate, that big things can happen. Big, and it's not shitty, not fun, hard stuff. It's, it's, it, you, you move through the challenging pieces and come out on the other side like a fucking vast weight has been lifted. And you could see that. It was visceral. You could feel it. Yeah. I could feel it within myself. Yeah. And um, that's, that's beautiful work you guys are doing. You also do work with men's groups. You've started a, a brilliant one out here that I have. Uh, not regretfully. I've, I'm happy that I've been Well, I'm regretful. <laughs> I'm giving, giving my time to my little one, but I am chomping at the bit to participate in this because- so many of our friends are a part of it and I get to hear about these experiences and what's going on and love hearing about it. I love the work that you guys are doing and you obviously, you know, with coaching and, and the, the work that you do in the world as a, as a vocation, you're a lot of men are drawn to you. You work with a lot of men. What are some of the key themes that you see across the board with the masculine right now as, as, issues that men bring to the table when they start working with you and within the group? Repressed abuse, sexual abuse is more rampant than what many may think. Um, Father issues in terms of still unconsciously seeking validation from the father, that, that tethering that's there, that cord that's there that needs the approval. And so it's that feeling of I'm not enough. I'm not enough as a man. I need to do more. I need to be more. I need to have more. And no matter how much I have, it's just not enough. And the, the, the you know the core wound around that is, Dad, will you see me now? You know, it's it's really it's that. It's uh, other issues are dishonesty, not being able to show themselves in the world, whether it's through um, unfaithfulness or whether it's through just being dishonest in friendships, not not having a voice in friendships. Most men are isolated. I said this earlier. I'm under no illusion that the friendships that I have, the male friendships that I have, it's a blessing. Most don't. The vast majority of men feel very alone and very isolated, do not have friends. They do not have people they can call. They have acquaintances. They may know a lot of people, but they don't have people that they can trust deeply. So they're alone in their thoughts, in their pain. But the repressed pain piece, man, the abuse, the physical and the sexual abuse is a big one, particularly the physical one more than anything else. Like the, you know, their ability to not emote, to not express what they're feeling, to only have anger as a secondary emotion that covers up the primary emotion, which is that now their go-to emotion. It's either that or being massively withdrawn from the world. Pornography is another, another issue as well. Sex compulsion, love compulsion, which is a form of codependence. But those are the, those are the top ones that, that really men come to me for and that what I see is happening in the world with respect to 
how men are, men are showing up. Yeah, we had recently uh, started diving into one of Aubrey's favorite books, uh, The Smell of Rain on Dust. No, I haven't Martin, heard that one. Martin Prechtel, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's written several books. But he talked about one of the biggest issues within modern culture is the inability, you spoke about men's inability to emote, and it's the inability to grieve yes. and the inability to praise. Yes. Yeah, the praise is very threatening. See, if I praise you at some level, I'm go, unless, if, if I'm an unhealthy man, right? I mean, I love praising you. I love seeing my friends rise. It fucking inspires me. But an unhealthy man praises you, but he's threatened by that because if they're praising you, it means that they're a deficit or they're not as good as you in that domain, but they need to be. And so they'd rather withhold that and keep it in themselves and compete with you instead in a hyper way. The grief piece is very interesting as well because, again, if you're showing emotion, if you're showing pain or fear, now you're vulnerable. Now, the interesting thing is about, you know, we look at Brene's Brown work, Brene Brown's work around vulnerability. <laughs> One of the key tenets of being vulnerable is, is being able to face uncertainty. You know, also having range in our emotional expression. You know, uh, overcoming big challenges. I would say some of the toughest guys in the world, soldiers, fighters, are faced with adversity, having to come overcome challenges, um, vo- faced with volatility, having to make big decisions. I mean, you know, in a very short period of time, we, we, we have a misconception of vulnerability and openness and transparency, but that also comes from a place of these, these boys growing up not being able to trust anyone. Right, And so they can't trust anyone as adults as well. And so that informs their perception of vulnerability of being open and honest because when they have been in the past, it's been criticised, it's been judged. Don't be weak, don't cry, big boy, you know, big boys don't cry, whatever it may be, right? And so we have this perception, this false perception of self, but all we're doing is, is isolating ourselves because what, what brings harmony in relationship? What brings unity in connection? It's when we speak our truth. It's when we share ourselves. How, how much strength is required to say something or express something really difficult that you're scared of? How much courage is required? But, but we think it's weak to be feeling that as if we're meant to be rigid in our way of being. But we're not. We're multifaceted, multi-layered, expansive, dimensional beings. But we don't see ourselves that way. We narrow ourselves and we have to operate within that dynamic, within that framework. And men do a really good job generally of doing that. Very rigid, very linear in their thinking. It's a very masculine trait, like linear, objective, orientated, very active. But it becomes obsessive and then it becomes extreme, which becomes unhealthy. And now it's shadow masculine because it's happening at any, at any and every cost. It's happening at the cost of relationship. It's happening at the cost of one's health. I'm going to be the CEO of this company no matter what it takes. No matter what it takes. Fuck. It's going to take a lot. You're going to sacrifice a lot, a lot of your soul. And you're going to get to 50, you're going to think, oh, I'm having a midlife crisis. You buy a couple of Ferraris and you think, "Ah, it's empty still. Empty still. Empty because you're not allowing yourself to be full. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot lot in that. I'm just thinking of the, the mindset, there's a book that Paul Check sent me called Egregores, and it talks about like the, the archetypical or even spiritual layer of a corporation, like something that's formed. And it could be like a religious faction. It could be um, 
a cult. It could be anything where a group is formed and something begins to exist beyond that group because yeah. of a template that's been set in place. I thought of, I thought of it with like Nick Bostrom when he was talking about um, uh, super intelligent AI. Like if, if, you know, when we build a road, we aren't conscious of the, the ants that we pour asphalt over. Right. So like super intelligent AI might just wipe us out because it's not conscious of where us as the ants it's wiping out. Right. So if it, yep. if it's made to make uh paper clips at all costs, you know, it overmines you or whatever, whatever it takes place. Right. But similarly, that's how a corporatocracy has been put in place, you know, because it was at all costs to yes. make money. Profitability was Correct. at all costs. Yeah. And that's not hard. You know, I use that word. I don't take it lightly. I've heard David Icke talk about it. I've heard many people that are, uh, you know, on the fringe that that speak to that. But that is what's happening in the world it's right now. It's not a now. conspiracy. It's, it's part not, of a system. Yeah, that's, and and we it. can track that back yeah. to people who make decisions like that. And if we're forced into a box of what the masculine looks like, we're going to be the fucking best at that. Correct. Right. And we're going to look up to those people that are making those decisions and think yeah. that we need to make those decisions as well because we value them and we put them on a pedestal. So this isn't, I agree with you, it's not conspiracy. You can be on the fringe and talk about this, but this is systemic. It's a part of a, a, a beast that we've created over time. It's not a bad or a good thing, but it's a thing. I don't know how sustainable it is. <laughs> yeah. For, for, for the globe itself or for us as individuals. Yeah, you know? both. The earth's carrying and caring capacity, don't, I don't think can sustain this level of, it's not so much this level of economy or economic growth. It's more how we're doing it. The energy behind it, the emotions behind it, the, the structure behind it, the way we're extracting energy from the earth and then processing that energy and distributing that energy, as an example, right? Yeah. It's pretty rampant and rapid. And it's like, you know, I've, I've, got a, um, uh, I've got a cut here, right? Okay, just from this morning, actually, a little, little blister, whatever. Now, if I don't nurture that, it's, and I keep doing what caused it, I'm just going to keep rupturing the blister and it's never going to heal. I'm not giving it, t- there's no reprieve. So at some point I have to take some time off to give it reprieve. But we're not really giving the earth reprieve and we don't even give ourselves reprieve because we go, we go, we go, we go. So I think there's, um, there's a rude awakening potentially for us because often, I know my perspective is that learning the hard way is not the only way by any means. I feel though collectively, the collective maturity of our planet and our consciousness, it's like, eh, well, you sort of got to only learn the hard way. <laughs> so <laughs> it's where we're at. I think, we, I think we're moving through that. I think we're transcending yeah. that. But it feels that's where we're still at as a, as a collective humanity. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I, I don't think it's the case. Based uh, on what I'm, I'm, saying. I'm agreeing with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I recently had Will Tegel on, Dr. Will Tegel on the podcast, and uh, he was talking about that, that, that the, the greater consciousness that is Gaia and nature itself has many different methods of communicating with us. Yeah. And, and we can show up in a vision quest by stripping ourselves of food and water and yep. being in nature for four days, or we can go into the cave, we can go into darkness like Aubrey did. Um, we can use resonance, energy healing, a lot of these different modalities or plant medicines, right? And we change that receiver on the dial to open us up to new arenas of consciousness to come through and speak to us. And that's been the plan of nature to reconnect us to ourselves and to nature as a whole. But now we're at a point in time where nature is going to continue to use that as a method, but it's also going to 
enter into our homes. And he talked about the, the, the snow apocalypse, you know, the, the, the great medicine of the North coming down here to Texas mm. and shutting off the power, shutting off the water and that deep recognition. He said in 1968, they didn't have air conditioning here in Texas. You know, like there was a time of the year where people would work and then they would go home and go to bed because it was too hot to fuck. You know, so like as the seasons change, you're like, all right, I'm leaving early because I'm going to have, it's finally weather enough, or, you know, the, the weather's calmed down enough for me to have sex with my wife. Right? He tells this story and it's great, but it's like, there was, a, that's not long ago where we were connected deeply to the circadian rhythms of the earth. Yes. That, you know, just a, a very short period of time. And then now it, I love fucking air conditioning, especially being in Texas, but that's a further disconnect. It's a further disconnect from the circadian rhythm. It's a further disconnect to yeah. the, 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 the soft communication, yes. the subtle energy of the earth, right? Yes. And so now we have this, this new communication line coming in to guide us. He calls these G, you know, global GPS systems, you know, like the GPS system of, of the earth to humanity, the GPS system of our solar system, the GPS um, that runs the Milky Way and then all, up the ladder through the whole thing through the one song. But that GPS is going to reroute us, you know, and, and, and like birth or like a purge, La Perga, it's, there's parts of that that are very challenging. And I think we're in the very challenging piece, you know, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a veil over the very challenging piece at the moment because I think people, again, I'm, I'm generalizing here. I'm very aware of that. I think we are um, reluctant to see that and we're hoping unintelligently hoping for the best and hoping that it passes and we are bypassing. We're spiritually bypassing, emotionally bypassing, collectively bypassing what is actually happening. And as a result, I think, and I, sorry, I think the collective bypassing is a result of the conditioned individual by- bypassing, which I experienced for so many years, for all of my life, basically most of my life. Um, and still have tendencies to do that as well. We all do. It's a defense mechanism and sometimes it works really well and we need to. But when it becomes a pattern and a habit and we apply it to every situation, whether it's an argument with our partner or, you know, an injustice that we're seeing on the street that we turn our head to in whichever way we do it. And there's a, a gr- there's so much gray in this and there's a fine balancing act. It's just going to permeate into the collective. And so now we're bypassing and hoping and hoping and hoping, but hope what? With no action? Hope with no thought? Even these types of conversations, I feel so grateful just having these conversations. The space that we've created, that you invited me here to have these conversations and for me to start thinking about, oh, I like that saying, that GPS system in every area of our lives. Let me, let me extrapolate. Let me sit with that. I'm going to sit with that tonight in my, in my reflective practice and I'm just going to sit with that and think, huh. How can I apply that to some of the Eastern philosophy, the Advaita Vedanta that I really adhere to and read and, and listen and, and absorb now? I wonder what, what, what's the similarity of that with that thinker and this? And I love making those connections. I, like Joseph Campbell, right? That yeah. cross-cultural mythologist. It's just seeing all the connections of different um, uh, time and space and, and different cultures and bringing it together. And again, celebrating our similarities. But if we remain in bypass, well, how are we going to change? I don't think we can. So we either use platforms like this and the World Wide Web and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and whatever the fuck else is out there and try and be a proponent of of transformation, right? And do that, I think, in a non-attached way, if that's somewhat possible. And in a, um, the intention at least, to not make it in an abrasive way where we're, pointing fingers and telling people what to do and 
being harsh with that. And I know some people, I mean, I know in my life I've needed, I needed hard and harsh wake-up calls. Um, but I don't think that's sustainably the best way to go about it, like forcing someone into something. That doesn't really work too well. Yeah. yeah ultimately. Yeah, we want to pull them along, not push them into it. Yeah, pull them through inspiration. Yeah. Not force them through that, that pushing motivation, right? Because that will only last so long. Eventually the motivation will dwindle. Sustainability everywhere, brother. That's <laughs> <laughs> what nature shows us, man. <laughs> Absolutely. It has been an absolute treat having you on this podcast. And, you know, you guys are in town now. You're not far from me at all. I want to spend more time with you. And Likewise. I definitely want to run this back with you. Where can people find you online? Uh, thank you, brother. I really appreciate being here as well. Um, uh, social media at Stephanosafandos or my website, uh, stephanosafandos.com. Dope. Link to it all in the show notes. Thank I love you, brother. you, brother. Thank I love you too, man.